in a sense, viruses have evolved on this planet along with us. And I think that we have to have a recognition that emerging diseases are part of human history and they are a part of the human experience and we ignore them at our peril. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk about the coronavirus pandemic and how to best make sense of what we're hearing about it. This is part of a short series of episodes I'm doing about the pandemic, and eventually I'll talk about how it will affect travel over the long term. But for now, I wanted to talk about making sense of the virus itself, since it feels like so much bad information is and continues to be out there, particularly on social media. One of the most sensible voices I've seen on my own social media feed is Dr. J.P. Santiago, a family medicine physician in the Dallas area who's been posting updates about the virus for the past couple weeks. As a doctor, JP is one of the frontline shock troops engaged in fighting the pandemic. He and his wife, Melinda, who's also a doctor, aren't just attending to their own patients. They're trading daily information with thousands of doctors around the world in an attempt to make sense of things. Hence, these doctors are in a better position than most of us are to see what might be coming next. I've actually known JP since we were both teenagers attending a summer camp for promising academic-minded students from Kansas high schools. Our cohort there actually included Ajit Pai, who was later appointed chairman of the Federal Communications Commission by Donald Trump and made headlines about his net neutrality policies. I've included an Easter egg at the very end of this episode that includes a brief discussion of Ajit in the context of a lip-sync talent show we did that summer. But the episode itself focuses on the much more serious topic of the coronavirus and making sense of how to deal with it amid all the conspiracy talk and political arguments and self-centered navel-gazing one reads about it online these days. I start this wide-ranging discussion by asking JP why people are stockpiling toilet paper of all things. Let's listen in. We're in an age now when so many people get their initial layer of news from social media, some of which is sourced and some of which is just comes in meme form or gossip form. Then I guess mm-hmm. my first heavy question for you, JP, is why is everybody buying all this toilet paper? Like, what of, of all the things to be scared about in the face of coronavirus? <laughs> I mean, do, do you have to wipe your ass that much? I just don't get it. Well, you know, it, 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 I put toilet paper as the bottled water, in the same category as bottled water and all of this, right? I went to the grocery store yesterday morning to pick up a few things that I was making for dinner. And there was a, a mom and her daughter who were two shopping carts full of bottled water, went out, loaded in the car, came back in, and went out with two more shopping carts full of bottled water. And the bottled water thing, the toilet paper, for me, is really kind of like I'm looking at this and I'm going, what about this virus is going to cause a breakdown in the water infrastructure that we have to worry about being hydrated and having clean asses? <laughs> I don't get it. Well, that- now, if, if, I were, if I were to make a supposition, uh, I, I would say that you know toilet paper and bottled water is really kind of – I think for a lot of people, it's kind of like an avatar of modern life. Okay. You know, to, to, to go out and – have toilet paper and have bottled water is like a, it's like a teddy bear. Hmm. You know, it's like, Oh, look at all this toilet paper. I have, look at all this bottled water. I have, I'll be okay. It's like the ultimate in shopping therapy. Well, I think that there's an extent to which stockpiling toilet paper is kind of harmless, 
But I know that there are some some rumors flying around on social media. What kind of bad rumors are you seeing? And how might you suggest countering like the rise of bullshit information? And and one corollary I'll say to that is that we're used to seeing bullshit information every day. You know, social media is full mm-hmm. of unsourced horrible information. But this is a pandemic, right? So um, right. What are you seeing that's being done wrong in the information transmission of social media, and how might we counter bad information as as mindful people in this day and age? Well, I think that when you're looking at the uh, the uh, coronavirus, the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, I think that bad information is on two sides of are on two extremes of a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum on social media is the impending apocalypse view of the world. Buy the toilet paper, buy the bottled water, stockpile on ammunition. You know, it's the social media version of doomsday prepping. Right. And, you know, this, these are the people who won't leave the house. They're just scared. It's fear. Right. And at the other end of the scale are where the people, like, don't know what the fuss is about. So at the other end of the social media scale, you have this... Well, it's not as bad. It's, it's, you know, more people die by the flu than they do by uh, coronavirus. Or it's just going to be a bad cold. Why are we closing schools? And so I think that there's an element of downplaying on one end. And there's an element of overplaying on the other end of social media when it comes to this. And, and this drove me nuts. And I think that's why I started doing those nightly updates on my Facebook feed for my friends and family that I since made public. That I said, look, you know, here's what, here's the facts. Here's what it is. It's not doom and gloom, but it's not downplaying. There's a middle ground that we have to tread. It feels like this is something that maybe your patients need to understand. That basically, there's a big extent to which the United States isn't prepared for this. And there's a lot of reasons why. I know that Korea was was more prepared because they had... I, was it SARS? Did SARS hit them hard about yep. 15 years ago? So, so they're they're just in a better position to test people, and so their numbers mm-hmm. are, are way higher there. And I, I lived in Korea for a few years, and I know that Korea, just like Korean culture, is a little bit more inclined to sort of all be on the same page at once about this thing. I mean, individualism is a prized word in in, in American English. But it's a little bit of a nasty word in Korean. You know, individualism sort of infers uh, a betrayal of community and family. And so, there, there's, so there's advantages and disadvantages to this attitude. But one advantage is during pandemics um, to be all, all on the same Facebook. page about Facebook. this. Yeah. And that's been a running, it's a running, it's a running joke that, uh, you know, uh, the Europeans and the Americans are a very undisciplined society when it comes to quarantine and lockdown. Hmm. And I think a lot of that, it, it, it's, I think it's completely cultural. I mean, you know, the, the, if you look at the uh, COVID-19 numbers for uh, places like Singapore, Japan, and South Korea, it, even China to an extent, uh, you, you do see indications in their numbers in terms of you don't see the skyrocketing of cases. A large part of the skyrocket in cases in China was because they, they were still trying to figure out what was going on. Hmm. And so I think that was working against the Chinese is they were the first one on the battlefield. Subsequent nations like South Korea, Japan, Singapore, Malaysia, those places like that came a little bit later, but they were cultural norms. You know, and the, uh, I'm Filipino. My ethnicity is Filipino. So I grew up in an Asian American household. 
And in Asia, the fundamental social unit is a family. Mm-hmm. Here in the here in the West, our fundamental social unit is the individual. Yeah. So I think that there was a. I think that in a lot of countries like South Korea, Japan, even China to a large extent, there was a broader mind picture that the society has of doing things, if not for yourself, for your family. And that can be hard to understand in, until you've been there. You know, I can intellectually understand that, but having lived in Korea for two years, I completely understand why that why it's so much easier to get on the same page. You know, because with with the family as that unit, as the operational unit, instead of five people going in different directions, you have five people who are sort of loyal to the family un- unit. Um, it just works better in these situations. And so I know that we've a lot of the data we have are from places like Korea and and China, where it, mm-hmm. where it happened earlier. And it feels like people who aren't completely like buried under hoarded toilet paper know a few basic things about this right now. Like the the phrase flatten the curve, it feels like most people get that now. You know, the reason that we're that we're right. quarantining is to flatten the curve and just to sort of distribute this sickness in such a way that it doesn't overwhelm our hospitals. I think everybody knows that we need to wash our hands, that we should not touch our faces when we're in, in these social situations. Um, and we should avoid crowds and and um, and really quarantine ourselves to a certain extent. But it feels like those are the basics. But there's a lot more information out there that people who are in your position, you know, in medicine and talking, um, networking with doctors around the world might know more about. So what should we be thinking about? What should we be considering at a time like this, which feels like it might be still the beginning of this pandemic? Well, number one, I think that you have to. Uh, we have to understand as a nation that we do, we 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 are only catching the sickest of the sickest patients out there. So when you look at whatever news outlet you use or online resource you're using to see the number of cases, I mean we're at about roughly about seven thousand cases uh, here in the United States. Uh, I can double check. Let me double check that real quick here. So in the United States right now, as of uh, 9.30 in the evening, central daylight time, the the number of cases in the United States now stands at 9,249. That really represents the sickest of the sick. Those are hospitalized patients. Those are patients in ICUs. uh, Those are patients in emergency rooms who are really, they're having trouble breathing because of the lung symptoms that are caused by the COVID-19 virus. And so I think that one of the things that I think your listeners should really understand is that as we deploy more testing and more widespread testing over the next several weeks, we're going to see our case numbers skyrocket. I mean, I would not be surprised if next week we see well in excess of 100,000 cases in the United States, assuming that all the widespread testing that's being rolled out moves smoothly. Why is our cases skyrocketing? It's not because the infection rate is shooting up and more people are getting sick. It's that we're catching more people who probably do have it. Right now, we're a little under 10,000 cases, but those are recorded cases. Probably literally, we're over 100,000 cases. They just haven't been diagnosed because we don't have the testing capacity. Is that right? Exactly. And the vast majority of people who get infected with COVID-19 are are either going to be asymptomatic or they're just going to feel like it's a bad cold or flu uh, and they're going to stay home. You know, the vast majority of people who get infected with COVID-19 uh, are, are, are going to do just fine. You know, so uh, the, this is not the zombie apocalypse, you know, where, you know, you now have uh, 300 cases in your town 
and next thing you know, your next door neighbor is eating the mailman's brain. That won't happen. <laughs> All right. We're not talking the walking dead here. You know, uh, I think that that's the, we, our reasonable estimates is that for every sick person that we've got in the hospital, there are probably anywhere from seven to 10 people out there who don't know they have it. Hmm. And they may not even be sick enough to think that they need to stay home. And so that's why we're really doing this concept of social distancing, because we're trying to get people who don't know they're positive. We don't know who they are. But if we can get everybody just to minimize our social contact, stay home, don't go out, don't attend concerts, large gatherings, that slows the transmission of the virus to the general population. So when we practice social distancing, it's not about keeping us from getting infected. Odds are we're going to probably all get infected at one point or another. There are some estimates that put that maybe as much as 70% of the U.S. population will eventually get infected at one point or another, but the vast majority of us will do fine. Is it's it that older segment of the population that we need to protect. That's the group that we don't want getting sick because of their mortality risk and the hospital course that they're looking at. Uh, we need to practice social distancing so that we don't get mom and dad sick, grandma and grandpa sick, people like that. And if those sort of, well, actually, a couple of questions. First off, when you say 70%, is that within the next year or within like the next 10 years? Probably over the, over the course of the next 12 months. Okay. I think it's a, I think it's a reasonable expectation that a majority of the, of the United States population will have gotten uh, COVID-19 by, in 12 months. But the one thing to understand is that, again, this is not the zombie apocalypse. You know, a very big chunk of us are probably already have had it and didn't even know it. Or if we're going to get it, it's going to going to feel like that bad cold. We'll stay home for a few days and do fine. Well, just just so people can appreciate what these older and more vulnerable people will go through, how does it kill people? Because I suspect it's not just that people who are 87 years old gently fall asleep and don't wake up. Um, that probably what we're trying to save these people from is 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 a, a not very pretty health process. That no, it's not. It's not. I mean, if you've if if you've ever, if any of your listeners have ever had the experience of being short of breath or having trouble breathing, that's a very anxious feeling. And so, what uh, COVID nineteen does is it enters the human body uh, primarily through the upper respiratory tract, like like your nose and throat, and it gets down in your lungs. And so, what happens in a lot of these elderly people is they start developing a progressively worsening shortness of breath. And uh, it on if they get a chest X-ray or a CAT scan, it looks like they've got pneumonia in both of their lungs. But that pneumonia is actually the virus that's uh, basically attacking uh, the lungs. And so that progresses to a condition that we call ARDS. ARDS stands for Adult Respiratory Distress Syndrome. It's basically lung failure. And so when someone gets ARDS, they have to go on mechanical ventilation. So these are the folks you see. They're getting intubated, and they're being hooked up to a machine to breathe for them. Because the damage in their lungs from ARDS is such, they can't breathe on their own anymore. They so, need a machine to, 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 to breathe for them. And so as these adults are in intensive care units with ARDS, they're getting mechanical ventilation. The ventilator machine's breathing for them. They have to be sedated. Uh, for a variety of reasons, um, at some point in the disease, what happens is they go into heart failure. We're not exactly sure why that is, but 
what gets people, what, what gets the older adult population who are hospitalized with COVID-19, it's, uh, it's, 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 uh, it's cardiac. It's a heart problem. What do we still need to learn about this? Uh, because you're, a lot of what you're talking about sounds like it's, th- these are very recent uh, observations that our empirical information mm-hmm. is very new. So what, what are doctors really hoping to get a grip on soon? What, uh, you know, besides a, a vaccine, obviously, but what sort of data are doctors really paying attention to about this and how it works? I think the biggest thing that we're really interested in is what widespread testing will tell us about the general population. You know, there was a mortality number. When, when, when COVID-19 first emerged, the mortality numbers coming out of uh, uh, Wuhan were, were, were pretty ominous. And as we've been able to test more people, the mortality numbers have started to come down for the simple reason that we're catching more and more people who aren't as sick. Hmm. And so by the time you get to a, by the time you get to, you know, I think initially we were kicking around mortality numbers in China initially back in December and early January of about 10% mortality rate wow. for all people infected. And then by the time you get to Italy, you are starting to look at the mortality numbers that are about 8%. And then you get to South Korea, you get numbers that are running around 0.8%. So I think that as we get more people tested, the data we're going to be more interested in is what is the true scope of infection, which will then give us what is the true mortality rate. Because once we know the true mortality rate, then we know what measures we can take. What do we know about the incubation period and how's that, how does that affect how it's transmitted? Well, the incubation period for COVID-19 is roughly about 14 days. Okay. The incubation period is basically from the time you're exposed to the time you develop symptoms. So during the incubation period, you don't have symptoms. The average incubation period worldwide for all patients who have been infected by COVID-19 is about 5.2 days. Hmm. So that means there's about five days between the time the virus enters your body and the time you develop symptoms to make you sick. What we're now starting to understand about COVID-19's incubation period during that 14-day period, is that it's very efficient at replicating copies of itself. Viruses don't reproduce on their own. They need a host to reproduce. COVID-19's host is humans. So when we get the virus down in our lungs, the viruses actually hijack the intracellular machinery in our bodies to produce more copies of themselves. And we release these copies. That's how we're contagious. Whether it's the common cold, the flu, herpes virus, or COVID-19, the basic premise is the same. The virus needs a host to produce copies of itself so it can infect other hosts. With COVID-19, that period of viral replication comes on pretty quick. So we think that most people who are in the incubation period and completely lacking in symptoms are probably at their most contagious at that point. Oh, man. And that's why social distancing comes into play. Because the most contagious person from COVID-19 could be the person that's checking out your groceries at at a local grocery store. It could be your best friend in high school. (laughs) You don't know. We don't know. Well, keeping in mind that we do need to go to the grocery store, um, Mm -hmm. what are the best practices? Is it just just that wash your hands, um, try to keep six feet unless they're wringing out your tuna? I mean, what can we do? (laughs) 
Well, I think that the, I think that you know, number one, I think that the hand washing uh, is a, is a really a really good good basic first line of defense because this virus enters the body through the upper respiratory tract. It's not airborne, all right. We don't breathe it. Really, we introduce it into our respiratory tract by rubbing our eyes, picking huh. our nose. All right. So if you're in, if I'm in, if, if if that's why you have to be closer than six feet. Because that's an individual who, because they're coughing, the droplets can get on you, they can get on your skin, and then you rub your eyes, and then 10 days later, you now have symptoms. All right? This isn't like measles. Measles is infinitely more infectious. You know, one person in measles could sit in, the waiting, could sit in a room and infect 15 people at the drop of a hat. Hmm. COVID-19 is not airborne. All right? You, you're not going to breathe it in. People introduce the virus into their bodies by touching their face. They pick their nose. They rub their eyes. I mean, I'm even afraid to put my own contact in. So when you hand wash with just even just soap and water, that's a very effective way of destroying the virus because it does not withstand soap very well. And so uh, hand washing and avoiding touching your face, there's very sound science behind that. And that's not just a, you know, because your mom said so sort of thing. It's all based upon how we know the virus enters the human body. And so while there's a lot that's new about COVID-19, we've already had several outbreaks of very closely related viruses that proved this to us. SARS in 2003, you know, MERS has had three outbreaks, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome out of Saudi Arabia, uh, 2012, 2015, and 2018, there were MERS outbreaks in the Middle East. So there are some analogies that we can draw from previous coronavirus outbreaks that we're applying to COVID-19. So I think that if you're asking, if your viewers are sitting there saying, hey, what are best practices? I can't stress hand washing and not touching your face enough. The second thing really is uh, thinking about if you're sick, stay home. If you're coughing, running a fever uh, with, uh, the, with the current pandemic going on, self-quarantine for 14 days, because that's going to put you well within the incubation period. And for most people, a good 85% of the population, if you're running a bad cold right now in this day and age and you stay home for 14 days, you'll be fine. And then, and because we want to catch that incubation period, we want to make sure you're absolutely not infectious to anyone else. So if you come, if one of your listeners is developing a stuffy nose and a low grade fever and maybe some body aches, stay home, stay home for as long as it takes. And if possible, self quarantine for 14 days. That's what I recommend to my patients. You know, they call up and they say, hey, I don't want to get anybody in your office sick. Here's what I'm having. What should I do? I said, if you can, if your breathing is fine, you're not short of breath and uh, you can control the symptoms using your standard over-the-counter medicines, stay home. So, so, so patients can have COVID-19 and just stay home and let it cycle through that oftentimes they don't need to go to the doctor. Oh, absolutely. I I think about a good 85% of people who get COVID-19 or don't need to go to the doctor. Hmm. You know, would it be great to test them? Yes, it'd be great to test them. But you know what? If right now you have a stuffy nose and a little low-grade fever, some body aches and a cough, if you're like under the age of 60, unless you're getting progressively worsening shortness of breath or just feel like you're de- declining in some form or fashion, stay home. You know, uh, stay well hydrated. Treat it like it's a bad flu. And then I think the last thing is really the concept of social distancing. And one of the things that I see really in social media that's uh, uh, really getting confused is people are confusing social distancing with quarantine. 
You know, yeah. a lot of people will ask, hey, can I go out for a run? Can I take my kids to the playground? Yeah. We're not asking people to stay home. We're just asking people, limit your interactions with other people. Because the way the virus is transmitted, if I live there and I sneeze in my hand and I go shake the hand of my next door neighbor and then he picks his nose, now he's got the virus. So the concept of social distancing isn't stay home, don't go out. It's when you do go out, figure out how to limit your interactions with other people, avoiding those large groups. Don't go to Sunday mass or church or whatever it is. This is why schools are canceled, because these are big groups of people every day. All throughout cities, you know, if your employer offers you the option of doing working remotely from home or teleworking, do it. You know, you got to go to the grocery store, go to the grocery store. But think about when to go. You know, can you go at an off peak time when it's a lot less crowded? One professional courtesy I was thinking about. I mean, it just occurs to me that people like you, people in the healthcare profession are really the shock troops of this pandemic. And you have the most information, but you're also vulnerable in your own way. You're going to be using best practices, but you know every doctor or nurse or you know healthcare professional that gets sick is one less informed person who's there to help. So for people who are in that 15% who really, really feel that they need to go to the doctor, Absolutely. I want to preempt people. <laughs> I want to preempt assholes who show up and are very demanding about things that you cannot give them. So what should they keep in mind if they are that 15%? If you're that 15% and you think you're getting sick, get in touch with your doctors. Absolutely get in touch with your doctors. And odds are your doctors may have protocols and procedures in place that may limit them actually seeing you. But it doesn't mean you can't interact with them. In my clinic, we're looking at – we're moving a lot of our visits into like video visits or telehealth. You know, or uh, just, just the other day, they announced at a press conference that they would allow doctors to use uh, things like Skype or FaceTime to reach out and get in touch with patients. So, you know, I think it's important to understand that, you know, it's not that we don't want to see you. It's just that we need to figure out how to still see you and how to still take care of you while protecting ourselves, our staff, and our patients who aren't sick. So I think if you're got, you know, if you're one of those 15% who's having a little rough go at this, reach out to your doctors and understand that they're going to look at alternate avenues to get in touch with you, to evaluate you and to get you taken care of. Some cities, they have like clinics that are designated for people suspe who suspect they might have COVID-19. Uh, other places, uh, you know, you, you, you may have an extra layer of questioning that, you know, your front off that your doctor's receptionist may ask you and your doctor may have, may do stuff like, well, what I'd like you to do is come to the office. Just, well, let me give you an example of what we do. I'll sit there. Someone calls me and says, Hey, I'm really sick. I don't know if this is getting worse. What should I do? I said, all right. After we get through the usual intro of questioning, I'll say, why don't you drive to the office? When you get to the office, you call my front office. You stay in your car. Once we get a call from you, we're going to send somebody out there. It might be either be me or my nurse. We'll go out there. We'll get a sample. We'll swab you. We'll do an initial evaluation at you. We'll do that outside so you don't have to come into the waiting room. And then we'll decide if you should go to the emergency room. Because the emergency rooms right now they're getting crushed with people who shouldn't be there. Hmm. You know, they're getting crushed with people who say, hey, I got a little sniffle. I think I'm, I'm worried about having COVID-19. And doctors are saying, go to the emergency room. No. If they got a little sniffle and they're young, tell them to go home and tell them to stay home for at least 14 days. The emergency rooms need to be 
saved and preserved for the sickest of the sick. Because we're going to see a huge upsurge in cases. And if 15% of however many million Americans get this, that's going to be a huge, huge logistical strain on United States healthcare resources. So if any of your listeners are sitting there and they're going, well, golly, you know, uh, I think if I don't care what your age is, if you feel like you got a bad cold or flu and it's getting worse and you're having trouble breathing, reach out to your doctors. They may have you contact one of their nurses or they may have you do an electronic visit or a video visit. Uh, and we're trying to make this up as we go along. So I, I, I would love to tell you that the way we're doing this in medicine is smooth. It's not. It's rocky. It's bumpy. And we're making a lot of mistakes trying to refine our procedures and protocols and processes so we can get people taken care of. You know, because we don't want well patients to get sick. We don't want us to get sick. I don't want my staff yeah. to get sick. But by the same token, I want to make sure everybody who's sick gets an evaluation, gets taken care of one way or the other. And some of the ways we're doing that are going to be very different. This pandemic is rewriting a lot of the rules about how we practice medicine in the United States. Well, short of calling your doctor, are there sources online that are dependable, that are that are keeping up with the developments? Short of, short of being your Facebook friend and, and getting your nightly updates, um, what kind of what kind of sources can my listeners look to so that they don't overwhelm their doctor with phone calls before they know exactly what's going on? I really think the best place to check more than anything else is the World Health Organization's website, the WHO. You go to the World Health Organization's website, they've got a whole section devoted to COVID-19. I've gone through that section multiple times in the last several weeks. It's very straightforward. It's very informative. It's very up-to-date. There's a section in the COVID-19 section of the World Health Organization's website. I mean, you just type in uh, WHO into Google, you're probably going to get them instead of like the band from the 1970s. <laughs> and you look for the COVID-19 website, you click on that, and you look for a section called COVID-19 or coronavirus Q&A. And there, the World Health Organization has a series of questions and answers, common questions and answers to people I think it's very straightforward. You do not need a sophisticated medical degree to understand it. I think that's a great starting point for everybody. Every time I see a friend or family member post something that I think is inaccurate about COVID-19, I'll pop that link in their comment thread. And I'll say, hey, you know what? Why don't you check the WHO's COVID-19 Q&A first? Hmm. I'll put that in the show notes, too, for listeners, uh, just in case they, they do get confused with the band from the 1960s. I mean, I've been tra I've been watching. I've been. Tra I mean, I'm tracking the CDC's website, but there's a lot of places in the CDC's websites that are really out of date. You know, at the point that we were really starting to look at domestic travel as a big problem, the CDC was still advising people not to go to Italy or China. Hmm. But by that point, by that time, cases were already skyrocketing in Germany, Spain, Belgium, and the UK. So uh, I was uh, a little disappointed that the CDC's website is not updated as frequently as it should. But I think the WHO has done a fabulous job in their website in terms of trying to keep things up to date. And a lot of the things that we used initially to try to wrap our brain around this outbreak, I got from the from a lot of their technical documentation that they provide for healthcare professionals. Well, I'm, I'm glad that you bring up 
like the CDC talking about travel and things like that, because a lot of my listeners are into travel and they're, they're, they're nervous about travel. Some of them are literally um, trapped in other countries, you know, that they're, they, they went on a holiday and, and they really can't come home. Um, so I'm curious to know how will this affect travel uh, in given what you know, um, like Right now, it just seems like it's a bad idea to travel at all. I mean, I could be wrong about that. Um, when will travel become somewhat normal again, and, and how should we travel as travelers? You know, it's a good question. You know, I think that uh, I think that at the point that we start seeing, like uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, national mandates on restrictions come down and borders reopen. Um, then I think the, the, the I think that there's going to be a large period of recovery for the travel industry to spool up their capacity to where it was. I mean, uh, you know, uh, some of the U.S. airlines are grounding enough aircraft to create a whole new airline. Hmm. You know, that level of that level of travel capacity. You know, uh, Delta is grounding uh, something like well over 300 jets. You know. Uh, American Airlines has cut back their international long-haul flying out of Dallas-Fort Worth down to just three flights. And so I think that for your travelers that listen to your podcast on a regular basis, I think that once borders are reopened and travel is allowed between countries, I think that the travel industry as a whole, particularly the airlines, are going to it's going to take them time to spool up their capacity again to where things were. So I think that when Whenever our new normal becomes around, um, I think it will be a lot more challenging to travel. And I think because there may be less flights, uh, less choices, I think it's very reasonable to expect that we might see a lot of major airlines worldwide either go bankrupt. Hmm. You know, cruise lines are suffering. The service industry as a whole, hotels, things like that. You know, they just recently, yesterday they announced, the governor of Nevada announced that they were closing all the casinos in Las Vegas. Wow. Goodness. You know, if if the Vegas, if they're going to shut the lights off on the Vegas Strip, this isn't an overreaction. Um, you know, there's 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 sound reasons that economic decisions like this are being made, not just by you know governmental authorities, but also by individual businesses, casinos, hotels, airlines. Uh, you know, so I think that whenever we reach that new normal, when it's time to travel again, uh, it's going to take a while for the industry to spool back up. Well, well, economics aside, what about individual health? I mean, are we going to be able to t- just take a normal chill flight in a year, do you think? Or are we going to have to always be washing our hands and be, be very careful and, and, um, and choose, <laughs> choose wisely if we want to go to an urban or rural area? I mean, uh, obviously, uh, for the travel industry, it's going to be pretty brutal. But for individual travelers, how can we take that dream trip that we canceled this year without coming home and infecting grandma. So I think that the, one of the things to really kind of understand is that pandemics in the modern age spread because of travel. And as we become a more globally interconnected society, uh, this is how viruses spread around the world. We can go back as far as the night as the historic uh, 1918 Spanish flu pandemic and the number one route that that traveled the world was on troop transports, taking men to fight in the European Trent battlefields. Hmm. You know? uh, so the, 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 the traveling around the world is really what spreads uh, a lot of emerging diseases. 
And I think that when you sit there and say, once we hit our new normal, and I've got to, I want to take a trip, I'd love to visit Morocco, or I'd love to visit wherever. Um, I think that unfortunately, we're going to have to start making some decisions in terms of like, what are the health risks associated with that? And I, and it, it's, it's a very sensitive subject, you know, because I, you know, I, I, I tell my kids all the time that life begins at the edge of your comfort zone. And I, by no means would I advocate that once borders are open, that we remain hunkered down in our homes and not travel overseas. I think that there's, I think there's a mental and emotional benefit of being able to go someplace you never have been before that's outside of your comfort zone, being able to explore, being able to interact and being able to soak that up is therapeutic. It's, it's mentally, it's cognitively beneficial for us as humans to explore. And I think it travel is in our nature. So we have to counterbalance in their new normals when borders come down that I think that we're going to weigh an extra element of risk. Hmm. You know, if I go to this country, what's going on? I think people are going to be checking uh, places like the WA, the, the World Health Organization's website. I would hope after all of this, the CDC's websites are more gradually updated. I think people are going to check the CDC's websites more regularly. You know, I'm shocked at how many times people will come in and see me and say, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to Kenya for two weeks. What should I do? I said, have you not checked the traveler section of the CDC's website? You know, there's a very good traveler section there, independent of all of this COVID-19 fuss that makes, I think, some very solid recommendations and based on your destination. You know, what vaccines should you get? What prophylactic medications should you get? Do you have to worry about yellow fever? Do you have to worry about malaria, West Nile virus? Things like that. So I think that I think that uh, what will really come out of this is I think people will really need to take into account health much more in their travel planning. I don't think that it's that people should stay out of certain places in the world. I think that if you're going to go to those places, do your homework, do your research and figure out what are the health risks? What do you need to prepare for? And if there's anything, what do you need to talk to your doctor about if you have to? Will there be an end point to this or will it always sort of be brewing or can we even know? Um, I, I, I presume that, that the, the worst, there will be a point at which the worst of the pandemic has passed, but it feels like from what I've heard, you know, uh, the, the COVID will be existing in various forms for a long time. Well, I think that number one, I think that SARS in 2003 and the three MERS outbreaks that we've had, 2012, 2015, and 2018, I think those are really sentinel events to warn the world at large that coronavirus as a species, as an infectious disease, is here to stay. Hmm. And I think we're really seeing this here with COVID-19. I mean, COVID-19 is so closely related to SARS, it's not even funny. You know, at the genetic and molecular level, it has a very strong uh, relationship and derivation from SARS. And so uh, I would expect that, that uh, you know, this is probably something that will gradually burn out, but will flare up. You know, if we look back in the historical record, uh, the H1N1 that caused the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 circled the globe three times. And mm. so I think that... Uh, I think that we're probably going to see, uh, I think we're going to, over the summer, I think that the number of cases in the Northern Hemisphere will peter out or drop down to a much more manageable level. But I think it'll move into the Southern Hemisphere. Hmm. I think that COVID really, 
I think it poses some serious, serious problems that worry me as a citizen of planet Earth. What will that look like when it rampages through uh, a slum in Rio de Janeiro? You know, what will COVID-19 look like when it goes through a refugee camp in Rwanda? You know, these are things that we need to start thinking ahead that once we have dressed our wounds and done what we can to mitigate the damage of the pandemic here in the Northern Hemisphere, I think that we as a, as, a, as a planet need to look at those countries. We need to look at Africa. We look at South America and we need to figure out what is that going to do? What's that going to be like in a country that doesn't have those resources that we have, that doesn't have the resources the Italians or the Chinese have? Hmm. Uh, I think in the fall, we're probably going to see a bump up in cases again here in the United States. One of the things that we don't know is, do you get immunity after your first infection? Or is it going to be like the flu where it's going to keep coming back? Wow. I, I, I have every expectation and would almost be willing to bet the balance of my outstanding student loan debt from medical school <laughs> that, uh, that the day is going to come probably in the next year or two that every fall we're all going to get a combination vaccine for influenza and coronavirus. I think that a coronavirus vaccine vaccination is probably going to be a routine part of our lives. And I think that's how we will live with this new normal. That we'll be vaccinated on a yearly to several every few years basis for coronavirus, so we can make those trips, so we can make those travels. Hmm. And uh, how? What are the predictions for when a vaccination for a coronavirus will will be available to us? Well, there are vaccine trials already underway in Washington State. Just this week, they already started their initial vaccine trials on human volunteers. Uh, there are vaccines in development in other parts of the world, too, as well. Um, but, you know, it's not like the flu. You know, we've had 40 plus years of making and developing flu vaccines. And flu by flu is a very modular virus. You know, it's kind of like it's kind of like the Lego brick set of the, of the virus world. So there are certain things about the flu that make vaccine development so much easier because there are certain parts and pieces that are used commonly, just like any kid's Lego set. Coronavirus is a new species. And so we're really kind of developing vaccines to a brand new disease that we've never developed vaccines before. I think it can be done. I think it's perfectly feasible. Um, I think that what we're really going to want to understand is do people have long-term immunity if they've been affected? Because that will clue us in on how uh, we should orient our research effort into a vaccine. Number two, as these vaccine trials spool up, is it providing protection? Is, it, is your body creating the requisite antibodies to fight off a coronavirus in the future? So I think those are some unknown questions. Time scale? You know, I don't know. You know, when, 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 when H1N, the last pandemic that uh, we experienced was 2009, H1N1, the swine flu. And that came late in the season. People had already gotten their flu shots for the season. And H1N1 emerged like in February or March. And we scrambled quickly. And we got a vaccine fairly quickly. But part of that was because we were just dealing with a flu. Well, H1N1 swine flu in 2009 is the same flu strain that caused the Spanish flu pandemic in 1918. Hmm. So, you know, vaccine development can move quickly if it is given the resources and priority uh, by both the political leadership of the nations involved as well as uh, research. You know, we got to fund our research. 
you know, it pains me to say that, you know, we live in a time where an education is considered is considered something that makes you a membership in a liberal conspiracy. Hmm. And I think a large part of the political decision making made and not only in the United States, but in a lot of countries was almost in a, an anti-intellectualism type frame of mind. You know, uh, we, we've seen this for years with the anti-vaccination movement. So if we're going to move forward from this point, I mean, we're going to develop a vaccine, and we're going to develop treatments and medications, um, then uh, we're going to have to sit there and say, science is important. We need to fund science. You know, uh, I've always insisted uh, to anybody within earshot that Homeland Security isn't taking off your shoes at the airport and getting patted down so that I get to second base with a TSA agent at an airport. <laughs> Homeland Security is funding your science initiatives that track emerging diseases. It's funding uh, production and development of vaccines and medications. It's working with other countries in a bilateral open framework to exchange data and to understand where are infectious diseases emerging? What are other countries doing? And I, I don't want to delve too much into, you know, the political angle of it, but when you have something that's affecting this proportion of the global population, there has to be a political angle because there's going to have to be part of the solution is going to have to be a political solution. Well, it feels like some of this has to do with foresight too, is that we, we go for, for years or decades without this sort of threat and then suddenly it happens and we want immediate solutions. Well, sometimes planning is a part of that and, and believing in science is a part of that as well. So um, I guess just to leave us with something, what would you say about how we should not just react to but think about something like coronavirus and whatever comes after it pandemic-wise moving forward? Well, I think there's a couple things that I think that, you know, you know, your listeners want to should probably go home with, you know, the uh, there's an American molecular biologist named Joshua Lederberg. He did a lot of the groundbreaking research in viruses through the 1950s, 60s and 70s. And in one of his most and Dr. Lederberg's most famous quote was the only thing that threatens the dominion of man on this planet is the virus. Hmm. And I think that for a lot, uh, I think that we have to understand that. These don't come out of nowhere. Viruses don't come out of the blue. There is an evolutionary and biological track record that they leave. You know, for instance, there were scientists who were in China in 2015 who were studying coronaviruses in bats because they felt that was a future emerging disease threat. And it looks like, based on the research that we were all revisiting now, they actually have actually isolated COVID-19 back in 2015 and not realized it. Wow. Huh. So, you know, these things don't come out of the blue. You know, if we look at the molecular record of coronaviruses, the ancestor of all modern coronaviruses emerged probably about 8000 B.C. at the time that we were developing agriculture and civilization in Mesopotamia. So, you know, in a sense, viruses have evolved on this planet along with us. And I think that we have to have a recognition that emerging diseases are part of human history and they are a part of the human experience and we ignore them at our peril.
This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to pandemic health information maintained by sources like the World Health Organization, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Luke Van Tassel did the episode art. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Is anybody more famous than Ajit Pai of, of our cohort uh, in the summer of 1988? I, You know, I think we're the only ones who are fully aware of the fact that we coexisted for a brief one-month period with our current FCC commissioner. <laughs> if any of us have a gripe about the lifting of net neutrality rules, Ajit's the guy you want to send your hate mail to because that was his call. We, we, we should have sat him down in the dorm years ago, JP. And and our when uh, during the talent show when when Stan and I did a lip sync to Kumo D, we had an all Asian American uh, crew, you know, uh, <laughs> I- including you, I think. Yeah, no, it was it was it was uh, it was me, uh, the Kim brothers, and uh, Nathan Wee. Right, and so it was all it was all. Um, East and Southeast Asian. So I, apparently uh, Ajit Pai was not a part of uh, of my crew that summer. But it was. <laughs> well, you remember you remember what we called ourselves. Oh, we were the oscillating, oscillating Oriental homeboys. <laughs> I know. I mean, like Oriental is like not the correct nomenclature, right? Like that. That's an eighties. Oh no, no, we were we were we we were. I'm just glad there wasn't like cell phones and smartphones back then because I probably would be considered high, unhirable by like at least 30 legal jurisdictions. Right. Well, that's it. Is <laughs> like at the time, like Oriental is like what my grandma called uh, Asian people. And, and we were sort of at that time where like Asians had just come to the United States in enough numbers that we were trying to be sensitive to that. But literally, right. you, you, the or, the oscillating Oriental homeboys were were the S one Ws to the public enemy that was me and my roommate Stan, and you guys just walked. We had a full Asian American crew. You guys just walked around on the stage looking tough, except for Francis, who was fourteen years old and rode a bike. On his bicycle. <laughs> so that it was the most. I think it was, it was really the nineteen. It was the nineteen eighties version of what Dadaism was to like teenagers. You know. If we could sit there and say, you know, what would kind of be the most surreal, irrelevant thing that we could put on stage that would even make Salvador Dali puzzled, we put it together. It, it was really genius. And the 14-year-old child prodigy on the bicycle was perfect. And if Ajit Pai had been one of the homeboys, then then that would be viral if it had been videotaped. Anyway. Oh, and he never would have been appointed FCC commissioner. Right. And we would still have, we would still have net neutrality.